Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. The Woman and the Dragon. This is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, like I mentioned. Uh, essentially, this is an overview of the enigma of Israel. That's a good way of saying it. Uh, without Israel church, the Bible cannot be fully understand without this chess piece of Israel. It's hard for uh, a lot of uh, Western-minded American church people to realize that five-sixths of the Bible deals with the nation of Israel, okay? Not, a, not some spiritual uh, Israel, but the nation of Israel, and we'll get to that more in a little bit. But five, six of the Bible deals with Israel, and a lot of it is prophetic in dealing with a third prophesied third kingdom of Israel, which just so happened to be reborn in the year 1948 within our generation. So, uh, interesting stuff that we've got to understand as believers, right? Uh, our Messiah was Jewish, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, our, our Messiah, right? So... With that, let's just begin right off the top. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, and go. And there appeared a great wonder in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Verse 2. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. So tonight I'm going to be reading the King James Version. I'm telling you, there's so much imagery in Revelation chapter 12 specifically that we're just going old school King James. I don't think any translation says it better than the King James. So many, many commentators on this particular part of the scripture, they try to make the woman here the church, the church that is right now, okay? If if this woman, though, is the bride, I hate to say, uh, and let me borrow Chuck Smith's, uh, Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith's uh, uh, quote on this. If this woman that we're reading about is the bride, then she's in a lot of trouble because she's pregnant, right? She's pregnant. The bride of Christ is supposed to be a virgin. Keep that in mind. It's supposed to be a virgin. So as we read on, here we have the, the woman initially. Uh, as we have read through Revelation and we'll continue reading through Revelation, we're, gonna, we're encountering different women, right? There's actually four women of Revelation. Can I see this uh, next graphic? Too good and too bad. There was Jezebel we read about in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. The harlot we will read about in Revelation 17 and 18. This one we're reading about right now uh, is also in uh, Jeremiah 3.20. And then, of course, there's the bride, which we encounter in uh, Revelation 19, verse 7, and in 21, verses 2 through 9. The bride is an espoused, espoused, uh, virgin. 
We read in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us, uh, chapter 11, verse 2. The women that we read about, though, throughout Revelation, they represent religion. There's two good, two evil, just like we said. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20 through 22, Israel is, uh, is described as the wife of the Father, the wife of Yehovah. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul makes it very clear that the Jews and the Gentiles and the church, in other words, are very distinct. They're very distinct, okay? So, the woman we see here, if we can see that graphic, the next graphic, the woman here, Israel, Israel is described as a woman in travail throughout the Old Testament, all right? So, Revelation, we've always say, you know, you've really, Revelation and Daniel go hand in hand. Truly, to understand everything in Revelation, you've got to understand a lot of Old Testament things, especially a lot of things in Daniel. Well, Israel, we here we've got the woman. Israel is described as a woman in travail in the Old Testament many times in Isaiah chapter 54, in uh, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7, in Jeremiah chapter 3, in Micah chapter 4, Micah chapter 5, right? She also gives birth to the man-child, uh, which we see here in Revelation 12, but we also see it, guess where? Back in Psalms chapter 2, verse 9. Revelation 2, verse 27 as well, and then again in Revelation 19, we'll see it. But this, this is Israel, church. As we study forward, we've got to understand this, that this woman is Israel, not the church. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, that's Isaiah 9. Us, who's us? Israel. Jesus is born of Israel, right? We hear that verse all the time at Christmas time. And then there's the issue of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is referenced in Galatians chapter uh, 3, verse 16, and in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. I'm, I'm giving you guys a lot of these scriptures because I hope you'll screenshot these if you're watching on a mobile device or take pictures of your TV if you're watching this on the, U the YouTube uh, channel on TV. Look these scriptures up. I obviously have, right? But it's just the Word of God comes alive and you see how interconnected the whole Word is when you follow up on these, okay? This, the issue of the seed of the woman uh, really harkens back to Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 15. That is when the messianic line began in the Garden of Eden. So can we read uh, real quick Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? It reads, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to Satan here, right? And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, okay? So this launches, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this uh, as we move through, uh, but this begins, this woman, the idea of this seed, and competing seed lines as well as we see here, okay? So throughout the millennium, we've had in this world competing seed lines from the seed line all the way up that was preserved through the flood all the way to uh, uh, Jesus, through David to Jesus, to the cross, to the empty tomb. And, and we also see a... a seed of Satan as well, but we'll, we'll get to that a little bit more as we go on. Uh, one thing that we've got to deal with, and I think this is, as the church, 
we have a responsibility to deal with, especially if we want to consider ourselves a remnant church or a church of Philadelphia, right? Uh, there's an issue in the church today that is very prevalent, and it's this uh, theology called replacement theology, this idea called replacement theology. Uh, there is a widely held view, widely held view that when Israel rejected her Messiah, she forfeited the promises to her, and that these promises now fall upon the church, thus becoming spiritual Israel. <laughs> so I've, that, if that phrase, when I mentioned it a minute ago, sounded weird to you, this is what I'm talking about. This replacement theology, it's in a, many, many uh, denominations. It's from, from uh, Catholicism. This is actually the viewpoint of the Roman Catholic Church, but it's also in many Protestant uh, denominations as well. You know, if you, if you come from a uh, more evangelical background or Pentecostal background, it would be hard to imagine that this could ever be a viewpoint in, in a church, but it is in the majority of churches today, as a matter of fact. You know, uh, I've even just driving around Nashville before, I've seen uh, different you know, signs out in front of churches that say, uh, talk about how they support uh, the Palestinian state and whatnot. And you know, it blows your mind to think, well, how could they not support the Palestinian state over the prophesied third kingdom of Israel? Well, it's because they don't see it that way. They think that the church has now become Israel. And the promises that were once for the seed of Abraham, they're no longer for them, but they're for us, okay? So there, there's some major, major problems with this viewpoint. And I'm just going to go over a few of them here for you, if we can take a look at that. Major problems with this view are, first of all, first of all, Israel appears 75 times in the New Testament, okay? Each time it refers to the nation of Israel, a physical, real Israel, not a spiritual Israel, okay? The promises involved that were given to Abraham, to uh, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, right? They were unconditional, now, the book of Romans, Paul does a great job and stresses, stresses that, to us that God is not finished with Israel. If, you read, uh, if you're reading Romans and you're just reading along and then all of a sudden you bump right into Romans chapter 9, from Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, Romans uh, chapter 11, those three chapters are like a little a minuet that is written for and to the nation of Israel, okay? Okay. Uh, Paul stresses, God is not done with Israel. Not to mention the 70-week prophecy that outlines the prophetic role of Israel after the interval of the church period here, right? So how can, how can we, the church, be Israel, right, if there is a specific seven-year tribulation, a time of Jacob's trouble that is prophesied for them at the, at the beginning of that 70th week period? How can we be Israel if that's you know, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Only during the interval of the 69th week and the 70th week is the period where the church is on the earth. And that's covered in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. So, there's a lot of, you have to, you've got to do a lot of mental gymnastics, honestly, to get yourself to a place where you truly believe that I'm reading scripture, and every time there's a promise to Israel, that's for the church now, right? Trust me, there's some promises 
for Israel that are yet to come that you don't want, okay? That you don't want, okay? A time of Jacob's trouble being number one on the list, okay? Not to mention the fact that Jesus, Jesus has yet to fulfill the promise that he made David, what well, he made Mary uh, to take David's throne. He made a promise to her that the Messiah, her son, Yeshua would take David's throne. And one day he will. One day he will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. So, why, why is this important? Well, hopefully it's obvious after everything we've just covered, right? But the main number one reason is somehow, church, we, somehow, the church went from Augustine to Auschwitz, need to remember this. One of the greatest atrocities of the uh, Holocaust was the failure of not only the German citizen, but the pastors and leadership in that nation to quell anti-Semitism. Okay? Uh, beginning all of, if we can see this next graphic, beginning all the way back with Origen, uh, Origen of Alexandria, uh, Clement of Alexandria, they began to interpret Scripture allegorically. And that's a big problem, okay? It actually started in Acts chapter 8, right out of the gate with Simon Magus. Simon Magus was a, a Gnostic of Alexandria, and he was with the Egyptian, uh, Egyptian Aseans, uh, Alexandrian branch of the Aseans, that were very much infected with Gnosticism. And he came back into Israel, where the Israeli Aseans were, and, and and began false teachings all throughout Galilee. And Peter deals with him in uh, Acts chapter 8. That's an interesting study if you want to do that. But he essentially, many of the early church fathers wrote about how he was allegorizing Scripture. He was actually uh, Hippolytus, in his Against Heresies, wrote that he, Simon Magus, allegorized much of Scripture to support his teachings, especially Genesis. So from there, people are allegorizing scripture rather than uh, interpreting it uh, verbatim, word for word. It says what it means. It means what it says. Generally, if it's going to speak in a metaphor, it explains itself. If it makes an idiom, it's understood through the cultural lens as well. Uh, this was uh, a church that John Mark planted in Alexandria that uh, Clement of essentially uh, Clement and Origen of Alexandria, and they took it over about 150. AD, and there were so many different Gnostics in it, competing Gnostics, uh, Gnostics universities were born at that same time in that city. And the Valentinians and the Basildans, they would compete, they had different beliefs, different thinking. Uh, Valentinian believed in predestination, uh, the Basilians believed that we were born sinless and that we could stay that way if we had good works. Ideas that are still, unfortunately, prevalent within the church today, and it goes all the way back to when uh, uh, to 150 A.D. when uh, John Mark's church plant was infected with allegory and Gnosticism. My goodness, that's where a lot of these ideas come from. As a matter of fact, Augustine. I say we got from Augustine to Auschwitz because ultimately, uh, ultimately. Augustine, in trying to win some arguments in his writings and whatnot, he then began to quote, quote Valentinian, uh, uh, Valentinian Gnostic writings, which he recanted after being corrected. In any case, in any case, can we go back to that graphic? 
It's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's a cool one, right? We see St. Augustine, he adopted through allegorizing scripture an amillennial eschatology. Okay? This is the idea. Let me explain this briefly to you guys, okay? This is the idea that they were in the millennial reign, the thousand years where Jesus will sit on the throne. They would allegorize and say he sits on the throne of our hearts. Uh, the kingdom is here now. And we're about 2,000 years into that thousand-year millennial reign, unfortunately. So that falls apart pretty quickly. But when you allegorize things, you see how quickly how quickly things can devolve. Uh, so uh, this was uh, an idea that the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, loved. They loved. Why? Because we've studied through this, through this study in Revelation, especially when we were back in this, uh, studying the letters to the churches, we discovered uh, the debauchery of the Roman Catholic Church, especially in those early centuries, right? So the medieval church, they loved power. They were, they were more than just the church. They were the government. They would control, they would control uh, different countries through uh, this thing they called interdict. Basically, they would say, you know, if the king of England doesn't do what I say, uh, the pope would say, if the king of England doesn't do what I say, then I will just condemn the entire nation to hell Obviously, the people will be upset about that, because I, the Pope, have the power to do that, right? The people will be upset, they'll rise up, they'll overthrow their king, and we'll get a Pope-friendly king in there. So the kings were ruled largely by the papacy, and they were debauched in many different ways and sought power. So this idea that they were in the millennial reign now, and, and the Pope sits on the throne of Peter, as they say, you know, they love this idea. So... And so it has traveled through the generations, guys. Uh, the Reformation's failure. Unfortunately, when the Reformation happened, they didn't deal with eschatology issues that were inherited from the Catholic Church. They didn't, and they, these these allegorizing problems continued on and through. As a matter of fact, um, you know, we can all go all the way back to. Um, uh, we can go all the way back to Calvin. When Calvin uh, introduced this idea of predestination, he was just borrowing it from Augustine, who was uh, borrowing it from Valentinian Gnostics. So the failure, can we go back to that graphic? Look at this. The, the failure uh, of the re reformers to address eschatological issues led to widespread false teaching in the Protestant churches throughout Europe in particular, and it led to disdain for Jews. These Jews who had forfeited their promises to the Gentile, right? And ultimately, that church, we've got to understand this, that is what led to the Holocaust in Germany. Hitler loved this idea. He loved this idea that those, those promises for Israel in the Bible weren't for Israel anymore or for the Jew anymore, that they were for the Gentile Christian now, okay? It's important for us to understand this because we, this is the root of all anti-Semitism, and, and we will see it again during the Great Tribulation. That's what we're reading right now, what we're about to get into a lot more as we move forward into chapters 13 and so on, Okay. Uh, we'll really address this issue when we get to Revelation chapter 20. But let's read, let's move on. Let's read verse 3. Remember where we are? All right, verse 3. And there appeared another wonder in the heaven. And behold, a great red dragon 
having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon its heads. The red here, this word red, it's only used two times. It's used here. And it's used when talking about the red horse in Revelation chapter 6. Okay, it's associated with death. All right. Okay, and has seven crowns upon its head. Let's read verse 4. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did not cast them down, and, or excuse me, and did cast them down to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, uh, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Well, first, let me cover this part. The third, of the, uh, uh, the third part of the stars and of the heavens, this is where uh, we get the notion that a third of the angels were cast down with Satan. Okay, that's you may have heard that before. A third of the angels fall. This is stars are often emblematic of uh, of uh, angels throughout the scripture. So this is where that idea comes from. But uh, I like those odds, by the way. If we're going into battle, uh, you know, if a third of the angels fell, that means we've still got two thirds left fighting on our behalf, right? Which is an interesting point. Uh, uh, an interesting point makes me think of the guardian angels, right? Which are mentioned in Matthew chapter 18. I encourage you, if you've, got, if you've got little ones, read Matthew chapter 18 tonight and share it with your little ones. Give them comfort as they sleep and rest, right? Uh, that's where uh, this notion that we have guardian angels comes from. And Matthew 18 seems to support that. Uh, verse 5, let's keep reading. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now this is cool because this is where that phrase caught up right there is that same word harpazo, which is in uh, the Latin Vulgate raptura, which is where we get the word for rapture. So a lot of times people want to say rapture is not in the Bible. Well, of course it is. It's that we get it. It's it's transliterated. That's how we get the word rapture. In Second Thessalonians chapter four, verse seventeen, the church is caught up, harpazod, rapturod, raptured, and it's the same word right here. So it's very cool. Um, so interesting thing about the child that's being born, right? If the mother is Israel, this child is being born. Uh, the child holds a rod of iron that we immediately think it's Jesus, right? Well, interestingly, there's a something. There's another theory on who the child could be. G.H. Pember was the first to suggest that this child could be the church. And that thought and that teaching, it really, really made... Uh, uh, a big splash in uh, in the Christian scene back in 2017, didn't it? If you missed it, can I see this next picture? This, if you remember back in uh, 2017, this alignment was coming into the heavens. Uh, some said, uh, I never did the research on the stars uh, uh, Stellarium software myself, but many people were saying it was going to be the first time that this sign was seen in 7,000 years, and it wouldn't be seen uh, again or something like that. Or no, no, no. First time in 6,000 years, and it wouldn't be seen again for another 1,000 years. I don't know how true that is or not, honestly. Uh, but it, this alignment happened on this, uh, September 23rd, uh, 2017, three and a half years ago. I think in three days, it'll be three and a half years ago. 
Um, but this idea, if you just look at this, there's a, the constellation of Leo and then three planets, Mercury, Mars, and Venus, came into alignment with Regulus the King Star in Leo, which is the Lion of Judah, which is 12 stars at the head of Virgo, which is the Virgin um, in the Maseroth. Uh, the sun is at her head, the moon is at her feet, and Jupiter, the king planet, which looks like it has uh, stripes on it and a crown on top, if you ever look at a picture of Jupiter. Uh, we studied this a lot back, at, back in 2017 because it's pretty interesting stuff. But you see that Jupiter is coming through the birth canal of uh, the Virgin there. So many people believe that it was a sign in the heavens for us uh, to... Uh, I don't know, like a, a warning for us or some sort of uh, uh, off-ramp sign. Maybe the rapture was going to happen or is coming soon, something to that effect. Anyway, this uh, I couldn't just read through that without mentioning that, but there is a big, uh, a big I don't know, a group of scholars that believe this is Jesus. And that's the traditional teaching is that the child is, is Jesus that was coming through because he said, uh, that because of the scriptures that say Jesus rules with a rod of iron, which can I see that graphic for your referencing, guys? Uh, there's a uh, first of all on the list we've got a messianic destiny. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Came to us in Psalms chapter two verse nine. The letter to Thyatira we read that a few months back, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Speaking of Jesus. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken into shivers, even as I receive, re received of my Father. And you see the tying between Psalms and Revelation? Man, guys, I tell you, the Word of God is so cool. It's just all woven together. Adversary, uh, adversity, adversary of the woman, excuse me, Revelation 12.5, uh, which we just read. And then the King of Kings, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his, high, on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Somebody say, Amen. Amen? Very cool, huh? So, uh, if, if though, let me say this, if the church... If the church, if it is the church that it's representing here, that would create a gap for us between verses 5 and 6. Because think about that. Let me just read it. She brought forth the man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up and to his throne, right? Comma. Pause. Verse 6 then immediately begins, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath hath a place prepared of God, uh, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. There we see that three and a half years again that keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. Anytime we talk about the end times, it's three and a half and three and a half equals the seven years of Jacob's trouble, right? So uh, if, let me say this, if this child is the church, it really, there's a break there in line of thinking. This happened, then th that happened, right? If that is the case, it's a gap that mirrors the gap in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 through 27, okay, which is the prophecy of the Messiah who is to come, and then will be what? Cut off, right? Uh, 
Likewise, there's a, a, a gap that comes to us in Luke chapter 4 when, when Jesus is beginning his ministry. Remember, he's, he's in the synagogue and he gets out the Isaiah scroll and he's reading Isaiah chapter 61 uh, verses 1 and 2. And he says, this is, this is the acceptable year of the Lord, the dektos year of the Lord in the Greek, right? And he says, this is, the, this is and it's essentially a year where free-flowing favor abounds, the favor of God is upon you. And then he stopped at a comma right before finishing out the verse. He stopped before saying, and the day of vengeance of the Lord has come, right? I'm paraphrasing, but he, so there's a gap there as well. Interestingly, if you're looking for gaps like this throughout the word, uh, Chuck Missler did a study on this. We lean so much on Chuck and his brilliant mind and studies. Uh, if you search the whole word of God, you'll find 24 of these gaps, okay? Uh, interesting, uh, interesting enough to mention, I think, because how many elders were in the throne room back in chapter uh, 5? Do you remember? 24. So, I don't know. Maybe a fingerprint of God that we like to talk about. Anyway, uh, let's keep reading. Verse 7. Verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael. There's that Michael again. We see we've been reading about him in Jude a little bit, haven't we? Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought... And his angels, a third of them, right? Verse 8, And prevailed not, sorry guys, neither was their place found any more in heaven, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more. I love it. So Satan is cast down here, guys. Satan is cast down. Additional references to that, you can find that uh, if you're taking notes in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, John chapter 16, verse 11, also John chapter 12, verse 31, Satan is cast down, okay? Until this happens here, until this happens, Satan can go back and forth between heaven and earth, dimensionally speaking, right? We see that in, uh, in Job. He goes to and fro from earth to heaven, and he is accusing who? He's accusing the brethren. He's accusing the people of God. He's to God. He's accusing them. You know, look at Job. Oh, I could get him to sin. I could. No. So he's the accuser. But until this happens, he hasn't been cast down yet. So we're still looking for that uh, that thing to happen. But let's take a moment, uh, a pause, and look at Michael. Can we look at a few things about Michael? Who is this Michael? Michael is the archangel, right? He's the head angel, the, the number one guy, one of the chief princes, Daniel chapter 10, verse 13 says, but he's the number one guy, all right? The archangel, according to Jude and 1 Thessalonians. Uh, he's Daniel's prince, again, chapter 10. He's a warrior for Israel. He fights for the body of Moses in Jude chapter 9. And interestingly enough, this is a really cool scripture. If you guys look up Numbers chapter 21, verse 14, it says that he fought in the wars of the Lord. Apparently there's this book, this book that is the book of the wars of the Lord. So neat. So I don't, I, you know what? Whenever we get to heaven one day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask God where the library is and some of these books that are referenced, like the books of Kings, right? And whatnot. He's not talking about First and Second Kings, but... Uh, these history recording books that are lost to us now, but uh, apparently the book of the the book of the wars of the lords is one of them, and he's recorded in that. Uh, that's mentioned in Numbers twenty one fourteen. Let's keep reading, verse nine, verse nine. And the dra great dragon was cast out. 
that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. You know, the devil is a lie. You know that? The devil is a liar. That's actually, can we see this uh, definition? Devil in the Greek actually means this, slanderer. And in the Hebrew, he's our adversary. So we know that he is a liar, don't we? We know that about him. Well, what do we know about this red dragon? Let's take a look at this. The red dragon, well, we find his origin in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 2 through 15. There's a rebellion in heaven that we read about in Isaiah 14. Okay, so this is ancient stuff. From the beginning, we see him in Genesis chapter 3. So all of that stuff happened before the account of Genesis even. Uh, the stars and the angels, okay? The fallen angels and everything. We read in Jude chapter 1, okay? He deceives the whole world. He is a liar. I'm telling you, church, he loves to whisper lies and deceit and discouragement into our ears. Don't listen to him. Pray, pray that the mouth of the, uh, of the serpent would be shut. Keep that forked tongue be behind his teeth, right? He's a liar from the beginning. He's set enmity with man. He's at odds with us from Genesis chapter 3. And we'll find in Revelation chapter 13, seven heads, ten horns, all of that visualization. We'll get there uh, next week. But let me read Daniel uh, chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, because it's incredible how, how much Daniel and Revelation interlock. One of the first serious Bible studies I did about, I mean, I, I don't know, 15 or probably, actually... Oh my gosh, I'm going to date myself. Back in like 2002, something like that, whenever that was, uh, I did a Daniel, Amber and I did a Daniel Revelation Bible study, and it really opened my eyes to on how to study the Bible. So uh, let's read Daniel 8, 9, and 10. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceedingly great towards the south and towards the east and towards the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. So this verse, all the way back in Daniel, is mirroring what we're reading now in Revelation 12 about the Antichrist. He'll bring down some angels with them, right? He brought down some with him. And what did we read about uh, with the... Uh, uh, opening of the seals and the and the blowing of the trumpets, what happens when the abuso is opened and the locusts come out, right? I don't know. It's some interesting stuff, right? It surely is. Um, guys, spiritual warfare is real. <laughs> we have got to, we have got to uh, take this seriously. I think a lot of the church today, uh, we just get so caught up into, um, you know, our routines and our lives as far as going to work, coming home, soccer practice, this and that. We're so busy, got to clean the garage out on Saturday. This is our whole life. And we go to church on Sunday, but then that might be about it. Maybe you're watching now, right? But uh, the church at large in this country today, and really worldwide, has has the spiritual aspect, the 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 demonic realm, okay? The fact that we have an adversary and have spiritual attacks come against us, 
okay? Satan would love for you to just be blissfully unaware that any of that's happening, okay? Uh, and he can continue to, to get one over on you because you're not fighting in the name of Jesus against him, right? So he'd be happy if you just think that he doesn't even exist, but it's very real. Spiritual warfare is uh, very real, and it will be on full display, and that's what this is all about, guys. During this tribulation period where, where we are finding ourselves here with Revelation chapter 12, it's going to be it's going to be evident. It's going to be seen. It won't just be unseen for very long. I think we're seeing it. I think we're seeing it now. Uh, let's take a look at this uh, next graphic. We see spiritual warfare. We know it's real. Ephesians chapter 6, uh, Paul tells us all about it, right? To put on what the full armor of God, right? Um, we read in Revelation chapter 9, the locusts have no king from Amos and the Septuagint, right? We know that it's Gog and all that from our study of Revelation chapter 9. We know it's coming. We know it's very real. Uh, remember from uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha's servant and Elisha's uh, servant was nervous for the armies that, uh, that were against them were there. And, and Elisha said, just open his eyes, Lord. Just open his eyes. And when he opened his eyes, he saw armies of angels around on the hillsides, right? Uh, we read in Daniel chapter 10, that the powers behind major empires, right, the Syrians, right, uh, the Greeks, right, there were demonic entities behind empires. Is there a demonic entity uh, that is that is trying to conquer the United States of America? I would venture to say there is. <laughs> That's for sure. We see Satan's methods that he did and uh, used in Genesis chapter uh, uh, three, right? He's deceit. He's a liar like we just covered. And one day he's going to tell the ultimate lie uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 11. We see that. And he's going to claim to be God, right? But Satan has got some methods. And we need to be well aware of the demonic stuff that is happening all around us. And we, but we can never forget, guys, that we, we ultimately have the victory. Okay, we have been reassured of this in many other places in scriptures. First John, Hebrews, uh, Ephesians, James, uh, Hebrews, Philippians. There's the list for you to screenshot if you want to. Psalms, Revelation, right? But we know that we've seen a Satan at work. We see him at work in the world right now. We've seen him at work throughout our study of the Word of God, haven't we? Can we see that next graphic? The strategies of Satan. Made a little list for you guys here. We saw Cain's murder of Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, we've seen the corruption of Adam's seed line in Genesis chapter 6, the Nephilim. We talked about that a few weeks ago in our study of Jude, didn't we? And the fallen angels. It's so interesting. So interesting, guys. The, the fallen angels that didn't like the state they were in, so they were, they were meant to be watching. There were 70 watchers that were to be uh, angels that were to be watching for God. They were to be watching uh, mankind, and instead they left their okotarion, they left their position, okotarion in the Greek, they left their estate, right, to take the human women as their own wives, and that birthed this race of giants, and that's where we get Goliath and his five brothers and all of that uh, all of that history, uh, and even Goliath was after the flood, so before the flood, even worse so, right? Now, all of that was to try and prevent a kinsman of Adam because it goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, doesn't it? The seed versus the seed. So Satan has been trying to take out that seed line from the beginning. 
And Genesis uh, chapter 6 was a huge attack on that. There were only eight people left on the earth that weren't corrupted DNA-wise. And so God puts them on an ark, right? Uh, but back to the list. We see uh, the attack on Abraham's seed in Genesis chapter 12 and 20. That famine in Genesis chapter 50, right? All trying to snuff out uh, Joseph. Destruction of the male line in Exodus chapter 1. Remember, Moses gets put in the river to save his life. Pharaoh's pursuit in Exodus chapter 14. Uh, remember the Red Sea moment? Well, we're going to be teaching about that coming up soon, and I'm excited for that. Um, I've got a real treat for you guys on that one. Uh, and then we have the population, populating of Canaan. Genesis chapter 12, verse 6. Remember when God tells Abraham... God tells Abraham that it's through him, through him that the Messiah will come. At that point, at that point, it would be four centuries before it would actually happen. So four centuries later, his descendants will return, God told him, and that gave Satan four centuries to lay down a minefield, right? You need to understand what the Rephaim are all about, church, okay? Uh, when God tells Joshua to wipe out every man, woman, and child, uh, of certain tribes, it's hard to understand that. Have you ever read that in the Bible and you read that and you're like, that's kind of harsh for a God of love, right? But you've got to understand what the Rephaim were all about. The Rephaim were the corrupted seed line and corrupted DNA. They were the seed line all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 again, seed line of Satan. Uh, and, the, and the reason for the flood, they're back to some degree here in the Rephaim. And when Joshua went into the land, what did uh, uh, he and Caleb and the ten spies, what did the ten spies say? They said, we're like grasshoppers uh, in, in their eyes. They're huge. There's, there's Nephilim in the land, they said. Verbatim. That's the scripture. So there were giants in the land. So when God tells them to wipe out every man, woman, and child, you have to understand that that was a sea, an attack that was the result of a satanic attack on the seed line of the Messiah. And they were the result of it. Uh, the, Ref, the Rephaim uh, were the descendants of the Nephilim. This was a gene pool problem. Uh, interesting note, Interesting note. if you do want to do a study on the Rephaim, uh, you can just type in to Wikipedia, as a matter of fact, and it'll bring something up. I did that. Uh, and it... And I want to share with you what I read uh, from Wikipedia, of all places. I mean, you don't get more of a secular resource than Wikipedia. It described the Rephaim like this. Rephaim have also been considered the residents of the netherworld. Sheol. Sheol in Hebrew. The area of Moab at Ar, the, east, the, the region east of the Jordan, before the time of Moses was also considered the land of the Rephites, the Rephites, the Rephaim. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 18 through 21 refers to the fact that uh, Ammonites called the Zamzumim, called them Zamzumim, which is related to the Hebrew word which literally translates into buzzers or the people whose speech sounds like buzzing. What does that make you think of? What did we just study in Revelation uh, chapter 9, huh? The locusts that released from the abyss. What was the abyss? It's Sheol, uh, referred to as the residence of, residence of Sheol. 
whose speech is like buzzing in the Arabic, the word zamzama translates as to rumble, roll, thunder, murmur. Remember, remember, the inhabitants of Sheol are released with the fourth seal, which makes Isaiah chapter 13, verse 3, all the more fascinating if you read it in the Septuagint, not even the King James Version. If you read it in the Septuagint, it reads, I give command and I bring them. Giants are coming to fulfill my wrath. You don't want to be here when that happens, do we? Rejoicing at the same time insulting. They do. Wow. So, yikes. So, uh, quite the attack on the gene pool. Quite the attack on the line of the Messiah. And then he continued to attack David's line. In 2 Samuel, verse 7, as well, Satan attempts to thwart the plan of God by destroying the nation and the Messiah line. Uh, can I see this next list? There's a few, I have a few uh, attacks on the line of David. Jehoram kills his brothers, right? In 2 Chronicles. Uh, Arabians slew all but Azariah. Uh, Attila... Uh, Athali, excuse me, uh, kills all but Joash, who is a small boy, right? Hezekiah assaulted, blood curse on uh, Jeconiah. Haman, remember Haman, the great ancestor of Iran, who's still trying to kill Israel today. My goodness. Still hates him, wants to drive him into the sea. They call us the great Satan and Israel the little Satan, right? But even through the New Testament, some attacks on, on the seed line of the Messiah. Can we take a look at that? Remember, uh, remember Joseph, when uh, Mary told him that she was expecting, uh, the fears that he had, right? Uh, Herod's attempts kill every male child two and under, right? There's a reason he said two, because by that time, uh, Jesus was two, not a baby in a manger. At Nazareth, right? They tried to kill Jesus, so they tried to throw him off a cliff, and then ultimately, Satan really thought he had got him really thought he had finally accomplished it at the cross. But you see, people have got to realize that the cross was not a defeat. We all get so sad when we watch The Passion of the Christ or the shows around uh, uh, Easter time, right, that uh, are all about the crucifixion and we, our hearts are broken. And, but the cross was a victory. The cross was the ultimate victory. Satan thought he was finally, after, after millennia, of trying to snuff out the seed line of Christ has Jesus nailed to the cross. And that was the ultimate victory. It's really cool. It's, uh, uh, we just watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe movie with the kids a few nights back, and it makes me think of that when Aslan gave himself to the white witch, but she didn't know. Uh, she, didn't, she, had, she had long forgotten the rules that were inscribed on the stone. And whatnot. Anyway, it's really cool. Fun to watch with your kids in that context, guys, if you're thinking about the cross truly being a defeat, or truly not being a defeat, but a victory. Uh, this Revelation chapter 12 is a summary of all of that. That's why I say this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, okay? So Revelation 12 is a summary of that, and he's not through either, because as we study next week in Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 13, We'll find out quickly that he is not through as we, as we see a one-world order step onto the scene, right? So, not to mention the fact that he's still attacking us today. That's why Paul tells us to put on the full army of God. Man, oh man. But the summary of his strategy, of his whole strategy, 
as the dragon is at the feet of the woman who is in travail about to give birth, this woman with a crown of 12 stars at her head, the sun on her, at her head, the moon at her feet, all of that. Revelation 12 is a summary, basically, of his strategies, okay? Uh, you know, he can't take away your salvation, church. You know that. Uh, but he can certainly inhibit our productiveness, can't he? Let's keep reading. Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying, In heaven now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Think about that. He's accusing you and I, church, day and night. Verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, amen, and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Amen. How did they overcome? Take a look at this. Here's how they overcame. His blood. Do we see that, Eva? How do they overcome? Here it comes. His blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. The word of testimony, they loved not their lives. Mm. We see that of those two witnesses in chapter 11, didn't we? They also see that Michael was intervening for them. Uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 tells us of this time. Again, interlinking with Revelation chapter 12. Because guess what happens? Uh, Daniel 12, verse 1, let's read it. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered. Everyone shall be found written in the book. That's the book of life. Is your name in that book? Is your name in that book? If you're not sure, you can be sure tonight. You can make that decision. You can put your trust and faith in him tonight. That the cross was enough. That the tomb was empty. That he's conquered death. And so you have also in him, by him, and through him, church. Mm. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, we're making some good progress here. Verse 12, Revelation 12, verse 12. Therefore, rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants. Oh, here is it. Is it third woe time, guys? Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. Remember, guys, after Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, we see anytime people on earth are referred to, by the Holy Spirit, they, he doesn't say beloved. He's, it's talking about earth dwellers here. So we see earth dwellers here again, okay? Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil, oh, oh, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. You don't want to be Israel, church. <laughs> you don't want to be Israel, for this time of Jacob's trouble. Come on now. Is this, is this the third woe from uh, Revelation 11? We'll see anyway. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. And the dragon, and when the dragon 
saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Verse 14, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished. For here it is again, a time and times and half a time, three and a half years, from the face of the serpent. So she is preserved, she is preserved in a place called Petra, which is in Jordan, which is pretty cool if you want to look it up. But the focus here, guys, is on Israel, isn't it? Particularly the faithful, the faithful. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Matthew chapter four, uh, 24, verse 15 through 22 covers them well, guys. We are moving. We are moving in this world right now rapidly towards the most documented time in the Bible. Rapidly, church. Well, look, at, we talked about this briefly on Sunday, didn't we, with this great reset? The UN pushing for this great uh, reset, the World Economic Forum pushing for this great reset. They want one world government. They want one world currency. They want a world without borders. Just go read the Open Society's uh, statement uh, on their website, right? But this is about Israel. This is Israel's temporary relief. And what's really cool about this, think about this. Well, what did we just read? He carries them on what? A wings of eagles. That is a trend that we see throughout the Bible. God refers to how he, how he rescues them on wings of eagles. You want to hear something really cool? When Christopher Columbus was coming over here to discover America, right? Obviously, he wasn't the first to discover America. It was well dis discovered way before that. We know the Vikings were here. But in any case, what he was really doing, he was, he was uh, on a journey he was Jewish himself, and he was looking for the new world, looking for uh, a place where the, the Jews could go after, uh, due to the Spanish Inquisition. So there's a lot of rich history, guys, uh, rich history that uh, we as the church should know about. Um, but let's take a look at that graphic, Israel's temporary relief. Wings of eagles. Look these verses up, guys, okay? Take a screenshot of this or a photo of the TV uh, and look these up because it's really neat, every single one of them. We see the eagle referenced in uh, Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 2. Eagle's wings from Egypt in Exodus 19. The wilderness, Deuteronomy 32. The return from Babylon, wings of eagles, Isaiah 40. The wilderness, Matthew chapter 24. Uh, escaping the Antichrist on wings of eagles, all the way back in Ezekiel chapter 20. And the door of hope that was presented to Israel. Hmm. God is, God is for Israel. He's not done with Israel. He's going to protect Israel. And we need to support Israel. We need to be pro-Israel as the church, guys, because God loves Israel, okay? And he's got some promises that he's going to keep. And yeah, he's going to have to discipline them as they reject the true Messiah and they look to accept an Antichrist. He's going to discipline them with this time of Jacob's trouble. But we need to be for them, okay? But we certainly shouldn't want to be them. And that's where a lot of these, uh, uh, that's where a lot of these Hebrew roots people get into trouble. Uh, he loves you, Gentile, okay? He loves you and you don't have to take the law on you. You don't have to become Jewish to receive the Messiah just because he was Jewish. All right, uh, the last one was the earth swallowed the enemies of God. Now let's keep reading. 
Verse 15. We're getting close. Verse 15. Three more verses. And the serpent, the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. So he tries to drown her out. And the earth, verse 16, helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of its mouth. Verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Wow. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Which keepeth the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, uh, remnant seed, uh, Psalm 124. Uh, don't have time to read a whole psalm, but Psalm 124, if you're interested. Uh, this conflict, though, what the remnant of her seed, what's it all come back to again? The beginning. It's the, the you see the end from the beginning, right? The beginning is in the end. It's all throughout the whole word of God, guys. There you see, lastly, last, last graphic, the conflict between these two seeds, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. Boy, we're about to see it next week in Revelation chapter 13, guys. The satanic trinity. Today we saw what? The red dragon, Satan. We've got the coming world leader, the Antichrist, and the false prophet as well. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The satanic seed is nothing but a copycat because he can't create anything. But this, this satanic trinity is the power behind the world powers of today, church. And we have to understand that. We have to see it for what it is. This isn't just politicians we don't like in office, right? Uh, this, is, this is a... Uh, this is a story that stretches back millennia, thousands of years that is playing out right in front of our eyes. And uh, I truly believe that we get to be the generation to see it play out as if we're watching a movie. I'll tell you what. Next week, okay. Uh, next week, Revelation chapter uh, 13 will introduce the satanic duo the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. Okay, so if you want to look for any background passages to get ready, you can read up the origin of Satan in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28. Uh, read about the Assyrian in Isaiah chapter 10 and in Micah chapter 5. And you can actually see the physical description of the Antichrist uh, in Zechariah chapter 11. 17. So, some real visual stuff that we're getting into now and talking about this end time uh, tribulation period that I, I truly believe will, we as the church, if your name's written in that book of life as the bride of Christ, you won't be here to suffer that wrath. But you'll be watching from the mezzanine, from the balcony. Uh, so, get ready. If you're not ready, for the rapture and Jesus to return and come for his bride. Get ready right now because you don't want to be here uh, when that time arrives. And it sure looks like it's coming soon, guys. So get your hearts ready. So let's, with that, let's close tonight. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your goodness, for your word. We thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you for, for how the lengths that you have gone to reveal yourself to us, Lord Jesus. Lord, 
We thank you, Father, that though we fail, and that we are not as faithful as we would even like to be, Lord God, that you make up the difference for us, Lord. We truly believe that the cross was enough and that you've paid that you've paid for sin once and for all, Lord Jesus. Oh Lord, give us eyes to see what only spirit eyes can see, that human eyes cannot see. Lord, let us see what's happening, Lord. Give us revelation and insight into your word, Lord Jesus. That we would be ready for the days ahead, Lord. That we'd know what we believe and why, because you've showed it to us, Lord, so we can be bold to combat the lies of the enemy when he comes to call us worthless in our ears, Lord. When he calls the, comes to tell us that we're not worthy, that how could you love us that much, and how could you really forgive me? When he comes to speak those things, Lord Jesus, we pray that the lying mouth of the enemy would be shut by the word of God that's written on our hearts, Lord Jesus. Lord, we know that the victory is already ours. The victory is, because the victory is already yours, God. So we do battle in the spirit, Lord Jesus, that we would be as effective for you as we can now in this time, Lord Jesus. Or we want to, we don't want Satan to inhibit our, our effectiveness for you in the kingdom of God in this time of history, Lord Jesus. Enable our hearts, strengthen our hearts, encourage our hearts for the days we're in and the days ahead, Lord Jesus. Give us the words to speak, Lord, to those that need encouraging and to those that don't believe that they might believe. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, we love you guys. We'll see you Sunday morning, 1030 at the Rutledge West in Pegram, Tennessee. One exit down from Bellevue on the McCrory Lane exit. So we'll see you then and tune in live if you can't be with us in person. We love you guys so much. Have a good night.